Hello, and welcome to From the Margins, a podcast which aims to highlight the voices of marginalized folks, people whose identities are devalued in various capacities, with the goal of listening, understanding, and networking around our shared experiences. First and foremost, I'd like to recognize that I'm currently located in Mi'kma'ki, the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. I am currently in the part of Mi'kma'ki that we colonially refer to as Nova Scotia, more specifically Jibuktuk, or Halifax. This land is occupied by settlers like myself due to a brutal history of violent colonization which stems back to contact and continues to this day. I recognize the legacy of this colonial violence, its current effects, as well as the multiple ways by which I contribute to said violence. My name is Vincent Musso, my pronouns are they and them, and I am a 29-year-old black, queer, and trans community organizer, educator, and activist based in Chochage, which is also known as Montreal. Hi everyone, my name is Masuma Khan. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I was born and raised here in Mi'kmaq territory, but I am an Afghan woman who has been displaced due to imperial violence and have found my ways to this land. I'm a brown, uh, visibly Muslim and disabled woman who lives here. And yeah, very happy to be here. Yay, thank you for joining me, and thank you for being my first guest on the first ever edition of From the Margins. I feel very special. I really, <laughs> I literally could not think of anyone else that I would rather share this time with. Um, so to give you an idea of how we're going to be kind of playing things out today, uh, we're going to take a little break first, mm-hmm. uh, kind of get our bearings, and uh, then we're going to move on to our discussion of the day, which is about intersectionality, the ways in which uh, it interacts with uh, our lives and how we move through the world. God so, bless Kimberly Crenshaw. God bless Kimberly Crenshaw. We're getting right to that. <laughs> Stay with us. Welcome back to From the Margins. Uh intersectionality intersectionality um so of course i was hoping uh today and i invited you on because of your amazing work um surrounding intersectionality of course uh a theory that we're aware of um due in large part to the work of of, uh, black uh, feminist uh, academic and activist kimberly crenshaw but an idea that's also kind of shaped black feminist thought for much longer than kimberly crenshaw's work a lot of people Mm. i feel have a tendency to like erroneously say that like she invented intersectionality, but of course, you know, that's an integral part of like right. of her experience and also and all our experiences as well. Um, I was hoping that uh, we could maybe start things off and give like a 101 of like what does intersectionality mean mm-hmm. to each of us? Because I feel like we're coming at this from such different social locations yeah. um, that we could really kind of learn from one another on, on what these experiences mean. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, intersectionality is this whole idea that I'm not just an Afghan. I'm not Mm -hmm. just a Muslim. I'm not just a woman. I'm not just a brown person. I'm not just a disabled person. I'm not just a settler. I'm not just, I'm all those things. And so I think for me, um, growing up here in Jibuktuk, I I found myself facing a lot of uh, racism because uh, Nova Scotia is the deep south of the north. <laughs> I've heard um, that multiple times since yeah, I've been here. Yeah, it is. And I, I, f- I started realizing the ways in which my parents were navigating racism in different ways and how my mother, as a visibly Muslim woman, was uh, navigating issues of discrimination and racism even though she was very like light skinned, and then my father, who didn't have to deal with the issues of sexism, but still dealing with the issues of colorism as being a darker, 
um, man with language barriers and an accent. So for me, I started seeing these differences and then seeing the differences in how people would interact with my brother and then how they would interact with me and my sister and how it was very different. And so I started seeing this and then when I got to um, got more exposed and got into university, I started seeing how um, I, yeah, I just could not relate to white women. Mm -hmm. I think I was, I went to a, a, a like majority racialized school uh, up until the end of high school. And then when I started interacting with more white folks, I started realizing how I couldn't actively relate to anything that, they were experiencing mm -hmm. i didn't have that privilege i didn't have that power and i don't know i felt like these feminists weren't really understanding my issues of race they didn't understand the ways in which their class intersected with their privilege and power and their race and all these things and even their their how they identified in their gender was not affecting them in the ways that it was affecting me as a Muslim woman because when people saw me, they saw me as being oppressed. They saw me as not being able to talk and um, mm -hmm. they couldn't believe I spoke English, you know? They mm -hmm. couldn't believe I was born here. But, you know, these these other women were, were not having to navigate these intersections of identity. So for me, that's kind of where it, I came to understand it better. Totally. Um, yeah, I think... I, I recognize myself in a lot of your experiences, but I think also something for me that's really challenging is, um, so for folks who might not be aware, I'm a transracial adoptee and that's not some Rachel Dolezal level bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like that's actually uh, an actual thing. Um, basically what it means is um, that I am black, but my adoptive parents were white. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically that of course is gonna have huge impacts on you as a person, right? Like you think about the ways in which um, you're taught how to interact with a racist world when you have parents who experience racism. Mm. I didn't get to have that yeah. teaching. And so intersectionality for me was something that kind of came at me by force. Mm. So it was like, I didn't recognize that I was different from everyone else until I very much recognized that I was different from everyone right. else, right? And, you know, like, I mean, you, th I think about it in the ways in which, like, I would initially interact with queer and trans spaces when I came out, right? Like, it was not abnormal for me to be completely surrounded by white people because mm. that was my family life, right. right? And so when I walk into these spaces as like a queer and trans person, I felt comfortable, but then there was something about me that marked me as other, right? right? And that's for me when I started to, to kind of get into this idea of intersectionality and to explore it a lot more. Um, and I think for, so for me, what it, it like really means to me is an understanding of myself as like, a complex individual mm. right I feel like a lot of the times our identities are not allowed to exist in a way that is uh, complementary mm. um, like the idea is that I am black and I am queer and I am trans but none of those connect with one another which is of course ridiculous yeah like <laughs> all of our all of our identities connect with one another and I have a section actually a bit after the break that we can where we can talk about um, the experiences that kind of are important to us and that should highlight the needs for intersectionality. Mm. But yeah, I think that's, that's that for me. And I think um, this is actually a really good segue into the next question that I wanted to ask. And I, it was, why is intersectional analysis important? Well, intersectional analysis is important because 
if we don't have that, you're basically going at it in a in a very white lens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you oh, don't have an intersectional analysis, you don't have a critical analysis. You are not taking into consideration people's social locations, their um, uh, things like class, their race, their their life experience that affect their daily lives, right? And so if you don't have intersectionality into it, if you don't understand intersectionality when it comes to day-to-day things that happen in our community, we end up harming our community instead of figuring out a way to build it together. Absolutely. Yeah, I see that a lot in the work that I do, right? Like, I think a lot of the time people don't really make the connection on like why an intersectional analysis is like necessary for Mm. all forms of work. And so take, for example, um, an organization that I used to work for called uh, Project 10. So Project 10 is an organization that uh, provides services to LGBTQ2 plus youth, um, which is, of course, integral work and has Mm -hmm. done so much positive change for the community in the past almost 30 years since it uh, since it uh, was created. Unfortunately, for the vast majority of that time, um, the focus was not on understanding the various ways in which people can be members of LGBTQ2 plus communities. Right. So what that basically ended up translating into was an approach that, of course, when you ignore an intersectional analysis, what you're saying is basically every other axis of oppression Mm -hmm. is basically checked off to like the privileged group, right? Right. Because that is the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so basically we ended up in a situation where, you know, we were doing harm to racialized youth. Racialized youth did not feel comfortable coming into our services. And we had to stop and ask ourselves, like, are we really serving LGBTQ2 plus youth if we are not? intrinsically putting the interests of lgbtq2 plus youth of color Mm -hmm. to the forefront and lgbtq2 plus youth with disabilities right right? or homeless lgbtq2 plus youth all of these connections using lgbtq exactly plus youth right and that's what i think about too with my my work at the youth project is like you know you can say that you're a queer organization that does all this work for 2s lgbtq plus youth but if like we're saying yeah we're not transphobic and we're not homophobic but we are racist like that (laughs) is the issue that's why we need intersectionality because we need our organizations who are doing this community work to be anti-racist to be anti-classes to be Mm -hmm. anti-capitalist to um to not promote islamophobia to not promote xenophobia and these kinds of language barriers and like stuff like this otherwise you just get into tokenizing and yeah exactly where i was going to lead right like the idea i think for me is that like somehow you know i think it's it's been really uh made aware to me with the uh the philly philadelphia pride flag with the Mm. black and brown stripes or the the forward flag with the with the arrow which is of course meant to um, show meaningful inclusion of racialized folks and of trans people Mm -hmm. within a larger lgbtq2 plus community I mean, if all you're doing is putting that flag up or and all you're doing is like bringing in racialized people every once in a while to like talk to us and make to talk to you and make you feel guilty about the ways in which you're not doing anything, but you don't actually take any action. Mm. You're not doing justice for racialized people. And I mean, what is like what purpose does it serve you? It's actually more dangerous, I would argue, because you're co-opting a symbol that Mm -hmm. communities created for themselves. And now you're saying like, well, doesn't really 
kind of mean anything anymore because yeah. well it's such a white thing to do right it sounds about white to <laughs> sounds me about because, white. Yeah. because like you sh- you promote yourself as this like oh we're inclusive and diverse and oh my god look at us you can put us on a poster and canada will give us money funding woo <laughs> but then when it comes to actually being anti-racist when it comes to actually ensuring that you know uh queer qt bipoc youth have the supports they need in order to be able to use in a safe way, you know, and you're not thinking about that because you're more, th- you're more concerned with, um, you know, you're not going to get funding because kids are using, yeah. well, you know what? I'm more concerned with the healthy living of these kids and ensuring that they have a long life and they have the support that they yeah. need. So like, where are your priorities? Are you actually prioritizing QT BIPOC life? Are you prioritizing, mm-hmm. you know, putting them on a picture and then trying to get some money out of them? Because I, I'm not about that. Well, we know what the answer to the question is, but well, yeah, but, gener- <laughs> but, but I think generally speaking, I think this is something, right? It's like, it's like we are a community organization and I think this is a, this is a, a cop out a lot of the time oh, that organizations yeah. will use of like, well, if we don't have any funding, we can't do any good for anybody. It's like, well, if you're harming racialized youth while you're doing this work, if you're harming uh, street-involved youth, if you're harming youth with disabilities, then you're not actually, I would argue that you're not really doing the work in the first place. No. Um, and it's not to, like, denigrate the work that's being done, of course. No. You know, like, amazing support work and, like, people are getting necessary resources out of these out of these organizations. Right. But it's, I don't know. There's so much I think we can keep saying, but I think it might be time for a little break. Um, but I do want to come back in and kind of talk about... Um, this kind of language in the ways in which mm. diversity has been kind of co-opted. So maybe we can get back into that. And hopefully oppression Olympics. Ooh, yes. Though so there's, <laughs> there's room for all of these conversations. <laughs> we'll get back to you right after this break. Welcome back to From the Margins. Uh, so we were just having a discussion uh, during the break around uh, intersectionality, mm-hmm. uh, of course. And uh, we were kind of thinking about the ways in which intersectionality has kind of, you know, directed itself and kind of gone the way of the term diversity these days. Mm. So I'm like doing the largest air quotes, but you can't see them over there. Such a buzzword. (laughs) Such a buzzword. right? It's kind of it's it's, so it's this thing that's kind of been co-opted by people who don't really know what it means Mm. um, and who would like to, you know, post a photo of all these different colored hands showing teamwork at a photo. (laughs) Then actually (laughs) it's the worst, you know, and like this this kind of thing that is not really true to the initial meaning right like i've heard people referred to as being intersectional as like you are an intersectional person like you know these kinds of things <laughs> yeah and like and like i'm kind of wondering like we i think we've both done this work so for folks who are are not aware i i do a lot of equity and social justice related work around anti-oppression right. um <laughs> you know that kind of stuff and off often i will see these kinds of dynamics play off and like it just gets me so frustrated because it kind of shows that people just like, what don't they get? Like, what are they not understanding? Yeah, I think it's the context of oppression that they don't understand. Right. right? Because they're not able to understand that everyone, every individual has their own specific context of oppression that's specific to every single part of them mm-hmm. from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, from their upbringing to where they're going to end up when they're dead. I can't believe that rhyme, but anyways, <laughs> hey. like bars. When's the, when's the album bars, dropping? Where's the album bars. dropping? <laughs> <laughs> 2020 <laughs> got bars. Um, but, you know, I think... I think that it's the context, right? Is that everyone's trying to say that my context is the same as yours. We have the same context. We do not. 
everyone has their own individual context and that's the thing i i never get about capitalism is it's so individualistic but when it comes to our oppression uh, the oppression that we face it is far from individualistic absolutely it's yeah. it's it blows my mind when i think about it like that but i think for me what they don't get i think people who like to talk about intersectionality and don't get it are ones that have a lot of privilege and have not been doing the work they have not been engaging in the work that needs to be done and if they have been engaging in the work they're doing it wrong because they haven't been able to take back critical feedback around how they're engaging in these concepts wrong and using them incorrectly absolutely yeah i think in my work i've, I've like honestly in an anti-oppression especially like in a 101 mm. i don't even talk about privilege and oppression at all right because i feel like the, the like the notions of like privilege oppression diversity um intersectionality have all become so like tokenized and like right. they mean nothing anymore right and so what i have a tendency to talk about is social location right. and so i will encourage people exactly like you were saying right to like look at the different ways in which um they interact with the various privileges and oppressions in their lives mm. um by centering themselves in the discussion right so like what is like i am in certain situations I can be in certain situations in my life where I definitely have privilege over another person. Right. And there are other situations in which other people have privilege over me and mm -hmm. I am facing like significant forms of oppression. These are also contextual that to mm -hmm. kind of say I am as a privileged person, which is something that I've been seeing a lot mm -hmm. as a privileged person, as an oppressed person mm -hmm. is not necessarily kind of a useful dynamic oh. because it doesn't recognize the complexity of all of the ways in which these issues kind of play themselves out. And I think this kind of goes back to something that we were talking about over the break as well, was this idea of like the oppression Olympics. Right. Yeah. I think you, you had a lot to say about this. Well, I can leave this yeah, one on you. I think like that's the issue I have with the way that people go about these anti-oppression 101s. Like, oh, we're going to do an anti-O session. Here we go. Privilege, power, this, that. We're going to focus on the oppressed people and what it feels like so that all the people with privilege feel guilty. And then we're going to give you all these buzzwords. We're going to teach you how to co-opt them. Mm -hmm. We're not going to focus on the people doing the oppressing. We're going to focus on the oppressed. That's the that's a big issue in the dynamic that that Absolutely. happens with anti-oppression. And then the issue is, you know, you kind of create when you do anti-oppression in 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 a way that is actively not anti-oppression, you create a hierarchy of oppression. And then you instill that into people's minds when they're trying to the people who are engaging in this work are trying to. I'd hope do better, but what happens is they get this this hierarchy ingrained in their brain that oh I if I'm I hold these oppressions and this person holds this 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 oppression, um that's where we're at that's where I'm at um and then people who hold certain oppressions can say hey you can't hold me accountable I have this oppression and it's like that doesn't work that way our context and this is when I think about Harsha Walia in her book undoing uh, undoing border imperialism and she talks about the ways in which we do not focus on our contextual privileges and oppressions um and that's where we create this oppression hierarchy and then we continuously allow these people to co-opt the language 
and then continue harm instead of actually creating communities that are anti-oppressive we create oppression by creating this hierarchy because anti-oppression means no hierarchy and it means accountability no matter what you're facing right and then what comes out of this is like when people don't want to face accountability is disposability politic, right? Mm -hmm. the, there you go again. It, it's the oppression Olympics again. I'm more woke than you. You do not have the space to, to I'm not going to give you the space to get the resources to learn. Instead, I'm going to ostracize you, create a little prison industrial system in our community, <laughs> Absolutely, right? Yeah. And then say that I'm anti, I'm, I'm pro-prison abolition, but I'm going to ostracize you from the community as a racialized person and then not give you the resources to do better right totally. when we're talking about uh, anti-oppression and we're talking about these things for me uh, as a as an organizer or a community member anti-oppression has to stem from 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 a radical kind of love where you care about what's going to happen to the person next to you and you want them to have the opportunity to do better live better be better instead of making them feel like it goes back into that guilt thing like totally. why are we recreating this with racialized people instead of calling them in and i don't like call out culture i'm not oh, yeah here no for absolutely it. not i don't yeah. like it i think there's something about there's something about call out culture that i think is very interesting around it in the way that it plays into into intersectionality because we often have a tendency to think about the ways that um we contribute to various forms of like i think call out culture kind of how do I word this? The best way for me to think about this is like call out culture mean for me kind of looks like someone throwing bricks from a glass house, mm. you know, because it's like none of us are um, immune to privilege or oppression and to like reproducing these harmful community dynamics. Right? right. And I don't I would argue that I don't think we really should be or we can be as long as the system is structured in the way that it is. Right. Facts. And so if we're going to allow this kinds of these kinds of things to continue being normalized like a call out culture, we're ignoring mm -hmm. the very real aspects of what is causing the marginalization in the first place. Yeah. It's not because this person down the street said a word that I didn't like because they didn't know better and therefore they've been canceled for mm -hmm. life. Like it's more so about like, how do I create communities of care mm -hmm. how do i create communities that like center the voices of people who um have a bit more awareness around uh what their experiences right. are are able to name that and also provide radical spaces for learning right mm -hmm. and i think and I, I use a, i think we both use the word radical and i think it's important for us to kind of recognize that and i think we're coming from the same approach of this uh is the angela davis quote right. of course radical simply means grasping things at the root mm -hmm. i think that's the issue right call it culture doesn't go down and grasp mm -hmm. the the underlying issues right no. like we can talk about the ways in which you know uh various organizers that like provincial and federal campus groups are out there <laughs> inviting members of well you know i mean like i i grew up in the quebec student movement and mm -hmm. i think like you know there's this idea sometimes that like we can appeal to this electoral politic right. in order to save us right or to or or worse still what i've seen in my organizing uh with other or unions in ontario mm -hmm. is the idea that um there is something necessarily good about like inviting a politician and then calling them out mm -hmm. and that gives you some sort of virtue. I'm like, it does nothing. It's a, it's a, it's an empty publicity stunt yeah. that doesn't serve to actually like improve the lives of students who are can't afford to eat, you no. know, like those kinds of things. And I think that for me is where the concern really comes from. But yeah. 
So yeah. I think that's like, I think that's where like, those are the worst kind of ways I've seen that culture used. And I think like, I definitely mirroring what you say with the idea of like the oppression Olympics, because like, what use is it for me? Like if, if our oppressions are so different in mm -hmm. all these different contexts, then like what use is it for me to categorize them and create a hierarchy of them? Because all of those hierarchies are going to fall apart the second another, the situation changes slightly, Right. you know, the context is so key in conversations of oppression um, and all of these things. And we just don't talk about it. No, we don't. Anyway, I just feel like call out culture is like, very capitalist in many ways right because mm -hmm. i feel like people are capitalizing on movements and choosing who gets to be part of it right the other thing too about um uh this like uh i guess being able to um sorry i'm gonna go back go for the it. other thing about oppression olympics is like it puts us in a situation where if you don't have such a critical way of analyzing people's privileges and context and, opp and oppressions, then me and Vincent were in a situation one day where um, an academic person who was racialized said something that really upset us because basically we're asking this person, um, well, how do you get through academia? Like as, as a racialized person, how are, you, how are you doing this? And she was just essentially like, oh, I don't let it bother me. Nothing bothers me. I just keep going. And for us as racialized people who are hearing this, um, you know, we were just kind of like, well, that's not our experience at all. Like we do not have the capacity to keep going when they're doing everything to tear the us luxury, apart. straight up the luxury to Facts. be able to do that. Like we don't have that. Like, my institution, where we're at right now, Dalhousie tried to discipline me, put me on blast. I've, I've never been able to run away from these neo-Nazis since, mm -hmm. right? And for me, like, I haven't been able to ever just, you know, not give a damn and, and look the other way because that's not how my trauma works. So mm -hmm. for me in that moment, even though the oppressions that this uh, academic face in ways are, she's facing more oppression than me, I, in that context, I was like, holy, holy moly, you do not <laughs> understand my context of oppression in terms of how much trauma mm -hmm. I hold and how much comp like I hold complex PTSD mm -hmm. around academia and around the whiteness that surrounds me when you can just walk by it and it doesn't bother you. Like, I, I don't understand. Absolutely. Right. And I think this is like this is the kind of thing where it's just why are we speaking for other people's experiences, right? Like, yeah, like that might be this professor's experience and that's great, but like to provide, like there is a context of saying like, I'm able to work through this and mm -hmm. I can get through it. And that is my mm -hmm. experience from my social location, which is a totally legitimate point of view. Facts. But to that's imply, happened, but that's not what happened, right? <laughs> like what happened was like, it was an assumption that like, this is the way that everyone needs to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And that does not recognize the diversity mm -hmm. of our experiences in a way that is intersectional. And I think that's, what's really problematic for me. It was kind of like a, if I can get over it, you can too. Yeah. And you should. Oh, absolutely. Cause it's holding you back and yeah. you're never going to be me. That's how it felt like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, to, to kind of shift a little bit, to kind of think about like the worst way that I've seen it mm. kind of used. Oh my God, this story. So I applied, so I was taking, uh, so I live in Montreal, as I mentioned. So I was taking the Metro and I saw this ad for, um, this, uh, thing called the Montreal Art Interculturel, uh, sorry, not, uh, Montreal, uh, Montreal Interculturel kind of bursary, which is an intercultural mm -hmm. 
bursary um, that encourages community groups to do work with um, marginalized communities. Mm. And so I'm like, great, at this point, I'm launching a project at my uh, at, at Project 10 around um, the importance of uh, closed spaces for racialized community members to be able yeah. to, you know, have their space and like exist, right? And to like not have to, you know, because I, I don't know, like I, I'm sure that you find this as well. But what I kind of find is sometimes when I'm speaking to another racialized person, I don't really have to worry about going through like like dealing with the feelings you know yeah like, what is racism sorry was that actually racism i'm not sure yeah that, yeah. yeah like a lot of that is really like toxic to me and i feel like it takes up a lot of space within a lot of community orgs Facts. and i think like just to not have to deal with that off the bat or if we do have to deal with it to deal with it, like in a in community is yeah. also like a really important thing mm-hmm. i'm not saying that like closed spaces are this are the like salvation to everything no. what i do think will end up solving everything and i think ronaldo walcott has done a lot of really mm-hmm. interesting work on this is like having those conversations and making sure that the white people that need to be there are there <laughs> listening to them right. we don't feel the fear about them like you we can talk you listen mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah. but anyway so I go out and I apply for this bursary. We were considering applying for this bursary. Then I find out, um, no, people have actually been re- denied because they were told that their projects weren't intersectional enough because they <gasps> excluded white people. Um, and then that's not the meaning of intersectionality and like all of these things. And like intercultural work does not include that. And I think, right, like it, 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 that kind of idea like denigrates the importance of what it means to like build a base, right? Like we need to be strong within ourselves mm-hmm. and like be able to lift each other up as community members before we can like go into a, what is going to be a very hard conversation, you know? Cause like the conversations that we were talking about are very hard, right. you know, like they're very hard for like white folks to sit around and listen to like a whole bunch of racialized people. Cry me a river. Yeah. Right. Like cry me a river, but also like it's hard for racialized folks to do that in front of white people too, Fuck. because we're trained to not, you mm-hmm. know, like we're trained to like, to kind of be like a bit more submissive when it comes down to this. So to do that in that way seems aggressive to us. Yeah. Right. And we want to avoid that because we're concerned, you know, mm. about what it means for our communities. But anyway, the idea that like a project is not intersectional enough because it excludes white people basically does not in- understand the premise of what it sounds means like, to be. Sounds like reverse racism. It's reverse racism to me. <laughs> Definitely reverse racism. I mean, uh, to be honest, I just I find really all these white folks co-opting languages and using it for their own like even the way that you see that the the conservatives are going around co-opting language when what what happened with um uh miss raybold in the in the liberal party Mm -hmm. they were like oh an indigenous woman and blah 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 blah, and they were co-opting language like the the alt-right is co-opting our language and so yeah they know it and they know how to use it right Mm-hmm. That's and I think what's so scary. And that's what gets tricky, right? Because like we can sit here and talk about how color culture is so toxic and all this stuff. But you know that like there are going to be like Liberal Party of Canada members who are going to be using that same kind of rhetoric around mm. the Justin Trudeau blackface photos. Right? right. Like these are the kinds of dynamics because they use it to serve their political ends, which is, of course, super toxic. Yes. It's not the, the means of our work. But I think it's something that we also need to be kind of prepared for. Mm. So I think we've kind of talked about a lot of stuff. Facts. can be a lot of info especially i think for people who are not kind of used to discussing these issues um if you had some tips that you would give to like our listeners to kind of help them like absorb all of this and kind of like like how to like understand intersectionality 101 kind of thing what would you tell them i would tell them that 
to be patient with themselves because mm-hmm. I don't think when you're first introduced to intersectionality that you really understand intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Intersectionality, understanding and grasping the concept and the experience and really understanding its whole its holistic sort of approach and critical lens takes time. It takes unlearning. It takes having these community conversations. It takes doing the work. Right? Mm-hmm. It takes all these things. So I, what I would say to yourself or what I would have said to myself or what I'm saying to you mm-hmm. is that you should be patient. You should be consistent and you should continue to grow even when it's hard, even when you feel like you are not being the intersectional person that you want to be. And you are not engaging in dismantling systems of oppression, you know, you have to continue. You have to be patient with yourself and you have to learn. I, I, I mean, mistakes happen. What do you do after your mistake? You get up, you try again, you do better. That's, that's where I've always come from and that's what I'm trying to do in my life. So I'm not trying to go about this like, oh, Masuma knows everything about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. No, it is an experience I hold and I face in a reality of my life. But I'm no expert. You know, I'm still making mistakes. Be patient. Keep going with it. Learn more. Do better. Don't stop. Because it's when we stop that, you know, everything falls apart for our communities. Yeah, like when we stop, that is how this injustice and the systemic things that we're fighting against enable themselves. Mm. Right. That's how it works. I think if I had to give the folks that are listening kind of anything to kind of help them with intersectionality, I would kind of say also be kind Mm -hmm. to yourself, take the space um, and recognize that you're going to hurt people. Yes. That's, I think, a thing that we don't recognize in doing this work is that like we are all going to hurt people Mm. and we will hurt people like pretty intensely. Mm -hmm. That is not an excuse to not do the work. Exactly. But it is important that we are able to like like recognize that we are going to do harm. And it's not it's not saying like I'm going to do harm. Therefore, I'm going to go out and like do all the harm I can. Like, don't don't do don't that. Do that. <laughs> but, you know, like the like doing anti-racist work is hard. Mm. Uh, for example, communities of color are uh, not homogenous. We mm. have all sorts of different experiences that relate That's... from our other intersectional like experiences. And there's not going to be consensus within our communities. No. So for you to be like if you want to act in allyship, recognize that like if you act in allyship with some in, with some racialized people, mm-hmm. you might not be acting in allyship with other racialized people. And that could end up hurting people. Yeah. And that is like an important thing to recognize. But you need to be able to know that you're making those choices mm-hmm. from like strong grounds that you're able to think about them in a way. Mm-hmm. Kind of think about it. Another thing that I would say is don't claim allyship. Yeah. I think like I see this a lot with like queer and trans community work um, where people will like like put like an ally sticker on their door if they like work in any kind of like professional field and they'll just be like, well, I'm an ally. I'm great. Like I, I did all the work. No, I went to a workshop once. I went I'm to totally a anti-racist. Exactly. Right. Like the idea of putting an ally sticker around like I stick to like to like uh, LGBTQ2 plus identities. But like the idea of thinking that like I did a workshop, therefore I am my office is a safe space is categorically not true i think i have a lot of beef with organizations that actually do this that go out and like do a one-time training and then ensure that everything's going to be fine because oftentimes they don't go into the depth that needs to be gone into around 
racialization around all these other issues around like you know like i've heard horror stories from people going into offices with ally stickers and like being told that like as a race i didn't know that like black people could be trans i didn't know (gasps) that like you know like these kinds of things and that is not what you want to hear when you're going into an office expecting support that could end up hurting someone like we need to be like cognizant of what allyship really means. And I like to say that, like imagine that you have like an ally membership card and mm-hmm. it expires at the end of every day. Yeah. And you are expected to prove that through action right. consistently, right? And that's what true allyship looks like, right? It also means that like recognizing in a lot of circumstances that like when the bodies of, I think Halifax is an excellent example for this, right? Like someone who looks like me is six times more likely to get to get street checked or carded uh, on the streets than mm-hmm. someone who looks like uh, my partner who is a white man. Mm-hmm. That is a terrifying dynamic. And sometimes it takes more than allyship. Sometimes it takes you being an accomplice mm-hmm. in allowing me to get out of these situations, right? right? If you see a person of color getting carded for no reason, like stand up and use the power that you have and be right. like, what are you doing? Like, why are you why are you stopping this person? Do you have legal? Start to, you know, get in the way because like our bodies are consistently being criminalized, right? That's something to be cognizant of as well. And I think that oftentimes people really aren't. No, they aren't. And like, that's the thing is like, if me and you were watching walking down the street and you get carded you get street checked i'm gonna be the one that's gonna be engaging with the officer as a non-black person as a poc like that's my Mm -hmm. job i recognize that that's my job i'm not having you engage with anybody if the police (laughs) ever come to us for anything it's me that's gonna go forward first because that's my privilege that i have and then if your partner was there, your partner would be going the first one, yeah. and me and you would be at the side being yeah. like, oh, damn. Then yeah. I'm the second. You yeah, know. there's like dynamics that yeah. we need to take into account regarding like what puts us in danger in, ter- in certain situations. And like it's on all of us to be thinking about these issues. I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect. No. I'm not saying that um, it's not going to be hard, but I am saying that we do have to try. Yeah. And I just think like we can do better. It's not that hard to think about people and, and, and create communities of care all you Mm got to do is actually care like absolutely have a freaking heart people (laughs) on that so as you can tell i think we (laughs) need some tea so we're gonna go grab a quick chamomile tea and take some sips and, and you know do some breathing exercises before we close off the show okay so we got some tea or calm down a little bit. Sipping on the tea. Consistently, consistently. But great news. That's a wrap for the very first episode of From the Margins. Uh, so thank you so much <laughs> to Masuma for being uh, my guest on this very first episode. I literally, like I said, I could not imagine anyone else that I uh, would want to do this with. I think that like your legacy of activism is like so strong in this city and uh, on this territory. And like you have been consistently highlighting the work that needs to be done um, and also standing in solidarity with folks who really, um, who we should be standing in solidarity to with. And I think like you have been like a shining beacon of like Aww. activism for me in my work here in Jabuktuk while I'm here for this like very short, period of time so is there anything that you want to like mention or plug before we kind of close off 
Um, uh, first, I want to say thank you. So, mm-hmm. Tashakur, that's how you say that in my language. Thank you. Um, I appreciate being here and being given this space. I feel very honored to share air space with you. Ooh, Ooh podcast. Podcast. Um, well, I mean, for me, I'm just busy doing the work. So if you're around Halifax, if you're in Jabuktuk and you're looking for stuff to do, ways to get involved, uh, we need help with stopping Alton Gas. Uh, there's a grandmother's uh, fund. There's ways that you can get involved with doing treaty work here. Uh, in Mi'kmaq territory and how we can stop Alton gas. Of course, there's always work that's happening within the African Nova Scotian community around stopping the street checks. Um, For me, I think get involved, show up, come to protest, go to the climate strike, do all the things you need to do. Be a human being that cares about your community. Uh, If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at M-A-K-95-101. Um, or you can find me on uh, Instagram at um, real.general.con. Um, I am also an artist on top of all the community work that I do, and I'm working on an album as well as a book. Oop. Oh, this is so exciting. Can't wait to read. Can't wait to listen. Uh, probably going to be airing on CKDU. I can't imagine why they would not be airing your music consistently. Uh, And that being said, uh, a huge, of course, shout out to uh, the entire team here at uh, CKDU uh, at Dalhousie University um, for allowing us to record in the studio. And I also wanted to have like a very special shout out to Nivi uh, for all of the absolutely amazing community work that they do um, in enabling and empowering uh, LGBTQ2 plus uh, communities of color here in Chibuktuk. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say that, like, I also like see, recognize, and want to underline the importance of that work. Um, so if you absolutely loved this podcast and wanted to give us some support, uh, you can check out the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee or two to sustain my writing efforts. Um, and uh, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to From the Margins, where wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you want to follow my work, my educational work, you can follow my Facebook page, Vincent Musso at facebook.com slash educator, uh, to keep in touch until next time. Later days. Bye.